All right, well, let's jump into our uh, parable for today. Right now, in, uh, you know, in this part of the spring, we're going through a series on uh, Jesus' parables. So we're looking at several of the different parables that Jesus taught from, not in any certain order, just, uh, you know, I just chose a random series of parables, and those are the ones we're looking at. Uh, Jesus taught in a lot of parables, so we got plenty, plenty to choose from. Today, we're going to be looking at one in Matthew chapter 21. And so if you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, we're going to be reading from one of Jesus' parables uh, here in that chapter. It's actually the start of a series of parables. He actually uh, teaches three in a row here, starting off with uh, the one we're going to look at, but we're just going to look at the first one. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21. Once you get there, we're going to start in verse 28 to read this parable, and then along with what Jesus has to say about it. Like I said, Matthew chapter 21, we'll be starting verse 28. It looks like everybody's ready, so we'll go ahead and start. So in Matthew 21, verse 28, Jesus said, What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, My son, go work in the vineyard today. He answered, I don't want to. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the man went to the other and said the same thing. I will, sir, he answered, but he didn't go. Which of the two did his father's will? They said, that being the Sadducees, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. But you, when you saw it, didn't even change your minds then and believe him. So like I said, we are looking through a series of some of the parables that Jesus taught throughout his life and ministry in the Gospels. Jesus very, very often spoke and taught in parables because he was a master communicator. Jesus was a, was a master teacher and master communicator. And one of the signs of, of an expert teacher or of a master communicator is that they are able of to they have this skill, this gifting, to say a lot with a little. You know what I mean by that? Have you ever read a small book that changes your life? You know, that's someone who is an expert communicator. They can pack a lot of, 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 a lot of content, big ideas into a small package. You know, a lot to think about into a, into a little bit of, of text or speech or a book, whatever else it might be. You know, one of my all-time favorite authors, someone who has had a gigantic influence on my life is C.S. Lewis. And you know one of the reasons I love C.S. Lewis's books? It's because they're short. (laughs) Have you ever read Lewis's book? Most of them, comparatively, especially to even a lot of Christian books written today, uh, are really short. Some of perhaps his most profound of them all, The Abolition of Man, is maybe, I think, just barely over 100 pages, and that's with fairly large print. But Lewis would pack these profound ideas, things that you could just chew on and think about uh, into, into a very small amount of space with these powerful sentences and metaphors and, and anecdotes and, and uh, illustrations that you could just pull meaning out of for, for years upon years, which is why, you know, so he was an expert communicator in that way, and it's shown in the, in the impact and the influence that he's had in the world. You can see Jesus being a master communicator and really all his parables, but especially in this one. 
You know, this is one of the shortest of Jesus' parables. They actually have different categories. They, they have parables and they have parabolic sayings. Because some of his parables are just one sentence. This one doesn't necessarily fall into that category because it's more than one sentence, right? But, uh, but he still packs so much into a small amount of space, this little parable. He teaches us in this little parable about the gospel. He teaches us about God's character. There's things that we can pull out about what the father in this story says about God the father. It teaches us how we can please God. And he responds to the Sadducees all in this one little parable. So we're going to, going to try to soak up and squeeze out as much of that meaning and lessons that we can this morning, although, of course, it won't be exhaustive. There will be more and more for us to learn over the years, right? But we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the command in this parable, the command from the father, and then secondly, we're going to look at the promise, so the promise of one of the sons, and then the turn of the other son, okay? So we're going to look at the command, the promise, and the turn. Let's begin with the command. So like I said, this parable was an answer to the Sadducees. Uh, the Sadducees, some of the scribes, basically the religious leaders, lead, uh, uh, members of the Sanhedrin who were the, uh, they had a political and re- uh, religious leading role in Jerusalem during this time. They had a lot of influence. They were powerful men. They were challenging Jesus because Jesus, this was during the Passion Week, Remember, Jesus uh, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey with the people singing. He went into the temple and overturned the uh, tables of the, uh, you know, uh, he overturned the tables where they were doing, uh, where they were selling animals for sacrifices and so on in the temple. So Jesus is disrupting their system. And so they come to him and they say, by what authority do you do this? In other words, who gives you the right to come in and disrupt what we're doing uh, to usurp our authority. It felt like a slight against their honor. And so Jesus responds to them by saying, I'll tell you by what authority I do it if you can answer my questions. So now they're going into a little duel here, a debate. He says to them, I'll tell you by what authority if you can tell me where John got his authority from. He's referring to John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist, who he was, he was dead by this time. He had been executed by Herod. But before his execution, he was widely seen and perceived as a prophet among all the people in Israel. Even the, even the Pharisees and Sadducees recognized his authority as a prophet from God. He was the first prophet that they had had in centuries. Okay, and so uh, they say to him, what, so Jesus says to them, where did John get his authority from? Which puts them in this difficult position. Because they know if they say John got his authority from God, if he got his authority from heaven then Jesus would say, well, I'm preaching the same thing as John. So where do you think I get my authority from, right? But on the other hand, if they, if they lie and they say, well, John uh, did not get his authority from heaven. He was just speaking by no authority at all. They were afraid of the reaction of the people because they were doing this publicly, right? They were afraid of the reaction of the people because John was still, even after his death, incredibly popular and in good opinion among, among the crowds and among the people. So it puts them into this difficult position. And so they talk among themselves, and they just respond to Jesus, I don't know. We don't know where he got his authority from. And then Jesus goes into this parable here. So that's the context of what's happening here. He, they, they ask him a question. He gives them this challenge and response. They, basically, they give him a no answer. They, they say, we don't know where John got his authority from. And then he responds. He's going to answer the question for them with this parable. Because what Jesus says in giving them this parable about a father and two sons, one of them who, who disobeyed, one of them who, 
at first disobeyed, but then ended up obeying. What Jesus says at the end of the parable is, you know, just like that son who at first said he didn't want to go to work, but then eventually went to work, uh, the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, he's referring to the people who, would have they, who they would have seen as the worst of all the sinners in society. He said, they are entering the kingdom of God before you. Why? He said, because they listened to what John was teaching. They listened to what John was teaching, therefore, they are entering the kingdom. So you see, what Jesus is doing through this parable is he is answering the question that he posed to them and that they refused to answer. He is saying, John got his authority from heaven. John got his authority from God because he was teaching the way of righteousness. Jesus says in his explanation of the parable, John came in the way of righteousness. He was teaching the gospel of the kingdom. They responded, and now they're entering the kingdom before you. And so, in other words, if John got his authority from God, then Jesus, who uh, preaches the same message, the way of righteousness as John, gets his authority from God as well. So you see, in this little parable here, Jesus is responding to their challenge, and he is pointing out something that we need to take note of. He is pointing out that John preached, he says with this specific uh, phrase, the way of righteousness. What does that mean, that John came and preached the way of righteousness? We, could, we often talk about preaching you know, the gospel, or we talk about preaching the good news. What does it mean that John came and preached the way of righteousness? Well, what, is it, what it means is, is and, and you can gather this by reading in the earlier parts of the Gospels where John preaches, John preached that they should repent. It means turn away. We're going to look at that later. That they should repent and then follow God. So in other words, what does the way of righteousness mean? It means living in accordance with God's will. Living in accordance with the way that God says that you ought to live. Living in accordance with or living in a way that aligns with God's character. And so whenever you are in right alignment with God's character or whenever you're living right with God's will, then you are living in the way of righteousness. That's what he says. And so here we arrive at our first big point that I want us to see. We are all held accountable to do the Father's will. We are all held accountable to do the Father's will. Jesus is showing them, and he's showing that to us, through referring to John's preaching of the way of righteousness and through the parable itself. Because in the parable, it, you know, it sounds very similar. Some scholars say this parable is almost like a summarized version of the prodigal son parable, right? Uh, you have a father with two sons, and the father comes to each son with a command. He comes to each son with a command, which is that they are to go and work in his vineyard today. He comes to them with a command, with a will that he wants them to do. His father sends his sons to work. This is a, uh, a, this is a symbol, this is illustrating and showing to us how God has a will for all of our lives. He has a command for all of our lives, a way of living that we are supposed to live out, that we are supposed to adjust our lives in alignment with uh, living in righteousness with his will. You can see this going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, okay? Because you might say to yourself, well, you know, it's really only Christians who are expected to live in accordance with God's will because they are following him. We can't expect non-Christians to follow God's will because they have not chosen to follow him. That's not exactly correct. Because, first of all, God is the father over all. He is the father over those who follow him and those who do not follow him. He is the father over uh, the repentant and the unrepentant uh, because he is the creator and Lord of all. 
And by being the creator of all, by being the father of all mankind, regardless of what they choose to do with their life, uh, lives, their lives are accountable to him. Furthermore, we can see this if we go all the way back to the beginning. We go all the way back to the beginning in the Garden of Eden. You know, this parable is almost, in other words, this parable is like an updated version of the Garden of Eden story. Because what do you have in the Garden of Eden? You have a father who goes to his son and tells him that he wants to work in his garden. Right? If we go all the way at all the way back to the beginning, to the creation, God creates the world. He, it says that he plants a garden. It, it, he, so there's this garden in Eden, and then he places man. He places Adam, his son, right, into the garden. But he doesn't just say, now go and enjoy all the fruits. He doesn't say, Adam, go and live the easy life now. He doesn't, go, Adam, go and live your best life now. That's not what he says to him. And he doesn't put him in the garden just to be idle, okay? He puts him in the garden to work it. He puts him in the garden to keep it. That means, that means to protect its boundaries, to cultivate it, and to spread it, to be his representative working in the garden. Now, here's the thing. God gave that command to Adam before there was, there was, before there was Abraham, before there was Moses, before there was any law, before there was Israel, before there was the, the, the family of Israel or the nation of Israel, and he gave that command before there was a church. And that command, then, was not torn down or peeled away by the entrance of sin into the world. That command still stands. That to all of God's mankind, to all of his children, to all of his uh, creatures on this earth, he commands that we do his will on his earth. We are all held accountable to do the Father's will. Every single one of us are held accountable to God our Father. Now, some of us might be thinking, oh, goodness, you know, this, this talking about being held accountable and having to follow uh, God's way of life and righteousness, and, you know, I'm sure that there's rules and laws involved with this, right, if we're going to follow his will. You know, these things, they, they sound oppressive. They sound maybe unreasonable that we as Christians should call the world to live in righteousness, that we as Christians should expect all peoples bow in submission to God and live according to his way of life. And you know, so we might be thinking to yourself, oh, this is just, I don't like it. It's, it's stuffy and it's rigid and it, it sounds impractical for our life today. But let me just challenge that thought and, and put forward this question. What would be the result? What would be the result if we started to follow God's will? If we, if we in our own personal lives first and then calling the world around us, calling Lafayette, and Acadiana around us, and then outside of that. To follow God's will, what would be the result? Well, let's fall back on the two illustrations that we have already looked at today. God put Adam in the garden to keep it, to cultivate it. The father went to his sons to go and work in his vineyard. Now, what is the result of planting a garden and keeping it? And what is the result of tending a vineyard? It brings fruit. It brings flourishing. A well-tended garden, right, where the weeds are pulled and the, and the good seeds are planted and it's watered and it's taken care of, right? A, a good field, whether it's a vineyard or, or cornfields or sugar cane, whatever, wherever they're taken care of, they, bring, they flourish, they bring forth life, and they bring forth fruits. That means good, profitable things for the world. 
These are the examples, the, the images that we are given of what it looks like whenever men and women obey the will of God. And so while, because we've been conditioned by our society to think this way, so while we might hear following God's will and righteousness and you know, rules and ugh, it sounds stiffy and just not great, let me just push back against that. This is the best hope for our society. What this shows us, this is the, if your life is a mess right now, this is the best hope, the, the, the best bet, the thing that you should be banking on to get your life in order, following the will of God, looking at your life like that garden that he has placed you in to cultivate it and to tend to it, like that vineyard that he has called you to go into work, that whenever you live and work in accordance with the way that he desires, there will be fruit. Whenever we look around at a world, a society, or where we look at our culture around us today that is decaying daily, that is falling away from God's way of life, that is falling away from God's wisdom daily, what is the greatest hope that we might see restoration? What is the greatest hope that we might see reconciliation? Or what is the greatest hope that we might see um, flourishing among our society today? It's following God's will. Because it's just like planting that garden or tending that vineyard. When we follow God's will, it brings human flourishing and it brings fruit. That means good things for the world. The greatest hope for human flourishing in our world today comes from obeying the command of the Father. So what we need to see is that, yes, we are all held accountable to God's will. That is a reality that we must each face as individuals, but then understand that that is a great opportunity. Let's look at the promise. So we have the command that that is put forward to our attention here from that God sent through John the Baptist that we see in the Father to his sons. We have this command. We are all held accountable to the Father's will. Let's start to look at the two sons now. And I'm going to start by looking at the second son. Because it says he has two sons. He goes to the first one. I want you to go and work in the vineyard today. And the son says to him, I don't want to. The son says, I don't want to. He doesn't want to go work in the vineyard, but he later changes his mind and he goes. I want to look at the second son right now. The second son is the one, the father goes and he says the same thing to him. I want you to go and work in my vineyard today. And he says to him, I will, sir. Right? If you have kids, if you have multiple kids, that sounds just about right. They're always opposites, you know. Maybe on one day they they switch places, but that sounds just about right. I don't want to. And yes, dad, you can count on me. Right? So it's a very realistic story in that sense. But he says, I will, sir. You know, he, he's, he's polite, and he's promising much. He's confident. But what does Jesus say? He goes, and he doesn't listen. He doesn't go anywhere, and he doesn't go work in the vineyard. Here's what I want you to see about him. The first one, promised but didn't perform. He promised, but he didn't perform. He promised much. He talked big. He was polite, but he didn't obey. And in Jesus' interpretation of the parable, after this, what he's saying is, you Sadducees, you Pharisees, you leaders of the Sanhedrin, that's you. That's what he says to them, right? Because he's saying the tax collectors and prostitutes, they're like that first son who at first didn't obey, but then changed their mind and obeyed. He said, and so because they're like that first son, they're entering the kingdom before you. So what is he saying? He's saying, that's you. The one who is not entering the kingdom, the one who is not 
obeying the Father, the one who is not pleasing the Father, who is living in the way of righteousness. He's saying to them, that's you. No, what we need to understand is that Jesus was throwing the conventional wisdom of the day up on its head. This would have been, this would have been shocking to the people who were listening because it, it was not the result that they were expecting. Whenever Jesus at the end of the parable turns everything upside down, saying the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering, but you're not. Because they were following all the rituals. The Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they were following all the rituals. They were following all the rules. They were, they were dressed in the robes. They had all the prestige. They were the ones who had the polite words, I will, sir. Right? They were the ones who had the theology degrees. They were the preachers. But they weren't obeying God. In other words, it was only an outside religion, but the inside was hollow. Easter was a couple weeks ago, right? The, the chocolate bunny that you get that just looks beautiful and amazing, and you can't wait to dig into it and savor it, and you bite, and it turns out it's just a shell, and it's hollow on the inside. And it, it's so disappointing, right? That was their religion. That was, that, was, that was their obedience to the Father. It was just a shell. It was empty on the inside. Jesus saying to them, that is you. Here's our second major point. Disobedience to the Father's will deserves disinheritance. He says to them, as long as they remain in that state, he says, you are not in the kingdom. As long as they continue to have a shell of obedience or a shell of religion, a shell of a relationship with God that is empty on the inside. They do not actually have a relationship. They do not have salvation. They are not in the kingdom. They deserve to be disinherited. They deserve to be cast out and punished by the Father. That's why he said to them, once again, they, he's saying the sinners are entering the kingdom before you. And so let me ask you this question. Is your promise bigger than your performance? Are you living a life that is a shell of a relationship with God? Are you living a life that is a shell of religion, a shell of righteousness? Do you, are you good at speaking polite words and knowing the right things to say? Are you, are you the one who says, I will, sir, but then doesn't follow that up? Once again, like that son, is your promise bigger than your performance? What Jesus is showing us here is that in the kingdom, it is performance that takes priority over promise. Let's be real. Let's be honest. Many of us, even many of us Christians, are better, are a lot better at the Christian talk and a Christian appearance and knowing the right things to say and signal and put on, but not quite as great at the day-to-day, hour-to-hour, living out the way of righteousness. So many of us often are living a shell of Christianity looking right on the outside, but on the inside. Listen, coming to church on Sundays, or maybe you know, hearing, hearing a sermon on your radio or podcast, and, and whenever we hear God's call and command on our life, saying to him, I will, sir, but then by the time we get to lunch after church, we're already not obeying. We're still not in the vineyard. Are you today living that kind of a life? Are you saying to God with your lips, I will, sir, but then not, be, not working in his vineyard? Are you putting on the Christian talk and appearance, but then not actually walking in the way of righteousness? This isn't a New Testament novelty. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament. 
in, in uh, the book of 1 Samuel, whenever Saul was king over Israel, and you can start to see his descent out of God's favor and his descent into wa- in, in, uh, uh, walking away from God, Samuel comes to him because Saul thinks, you know, if I just, if I just offer a sacrifice, then that'll put me back, uh, back right with God, and he'll just overlook, you know, all the egregious ways that I'm disobeying him. And Samuel comes to him, and he says to Saul, Saul, what does God really want of you? Is it sacrifices, or is it to walk in obedience to him? You know, similarly, how many of us offer, offer up sacrifices, right, but are not really walking in obedience? Similarly, in, in Romans chapter 12, where from Romans chapter 11 to 12 is whenever Paul starts to shift from teaching a lot of really heady theology into the practical application. And you know what's the first thing that he says whenever he moves from that theology to the application in Romans chapter 12? He says, I challenge you then, he says, I urge you to present yourselves as living sacrifices. In other words, once again, what does God really require? Not just a performative religion, but that your life itself would be the sacrifice, that your life itself and that your obedience would be what you present to him. What did James say? Faith without works. He says, you believe, good for you. So do the demons. He said, faith without works is dead. Many of us are a lot better at that Christian talk and appearance and signaling than we are at actually walking it out. And as long as we continue to live that way, we're that second son, being polite and promising but not performing. But let's look at the first son. It was the first son in this parable who at first refused. It was the first son in this parable who was not polite but in contrast was incredibly rude. And here's what we need to understand. Today, in, in 21st century America, whenever I tell my, one of my kids to go do something and they say to me, I don't want to, it's rude and disobedient, but it's, not, but it's not that big of a deal to us. We kind of expect it. More so if you're an adult and you know, you're no longer having to live under the authority of your parents and your parents tell you that, you do, that they want you to do something and you say, I really don't want to or I can't or whatever else, we say, no big deal, Right? In this culture, for that son to respond to his father whenever his father says, you need to go work in the vineyard today, to just say, I don't want to. That, was, that alone right there would have been seen as an act worthy of disinheritance, as an act worthy of receiving an incredible punishment or some kind of consequences afterwards. Because that was, even as an adult, that was not the kind of thing that you should say or in the kind of way that you should act. That's the first son. He says, I don't want to. But then what happens? Though he should have received the father's disinheritance, he doesn't. The father is patient, just like the, just like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, right? He, he is patient. And then it says that later he changed his mind. Later he changes his mind, and though at first he was disobedient, once he changes his mind, he's then obedient, and he goes to work in the fields. Later he changes his mind, and he goes to work. Here's the third and final big point that I want you guys to see today. That repentance and obedience secures the Father's grace for our salvation. Repentance and obedience secures the Father's grace for our salvation. I want to pull out two implications from this, or two emphases. The first one is on that point of grace. 
we need to see that the grace of God saturates this little parable here. It's not super, super obvious at first reading or just on a surface reading, but the grace of God displayed in the Father, in the character of the Father of the story, saturates this story here. Because, like I said, so that son is incredibly disobedient to him whenever he says, I don't want to. I'm not going to work. I don't feel like it. But the father doesn't disinherit him on the spot. He doesn't cast him out. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't do any, things, any, any of those things. Instead, he is patient with him. And as time goes on, we don't know how much time it is, but he is patient with him. And in time, whenever the son uh, changes his mind and he goes to work, the father receives that. The father in the story receives that act of repentance and obedience from his disobedient son, who should have received the consequences for his disobedience. Instead, he is patient and he is gracious. And then even with the son who is polite and promises but then doesn't go and perform, even with him we can see grace. Because the father would have known. He wasn't fooled by the son's politeness. The father would have known that his son was not obeying him, was not out in the fields, that he had still not come to that point of changing his mind and obeying. But even him, we see that, you know, the parable ends kind of open-ended, but even with him, there is no, there's no consequence. The grace of God fills this parable. He's so patient towards both of them. And then, like I said before, after that first son had changed his mind, there was no reason that the father had to accept his repentance. He's, he could have said, you blew it. He could have said, you disobeyed me. You, you, because I'm a just man, you will receive the consequences for your disobedience. But instead, he receives it. He absorbs that disobedience. He absorbs that sin against himself that his son had done to him and gives him grace whenever he repents and goes to work in the vineyard. So we need to see this, that the grace of God fills and saturates this parable. The grace of God is on every syllable of Jesus' words in this parable. That's the first thing I want to emphasize. The second thing is this, that grace and repentance precedes performance. That grace and uh, repentance precedes the performance. Because like I said already, right, grace saturates this parable. It's all over it. If you, if you look closely, if you see it there, the whole reason that this parable is possible is because, because the Father is gracious. So grace already precedes the performance of that, of that son, but, but even before he begins to perform, there is a moment of turning. What does Jesus say? He says, later he changed his mind, and then he went to work. And then after the parable, whenever he's explaining it, and he's confronting the Sadducees, he says to them the same phrase. He says, the tax collectors and the prostitutes heard John, changed their mind, and followed. That's a really key phrase there. Do you know what Jesus is describing He's describing repentance. This is one of the ways that the Bible describes, one of the ways that we can define repentance. It's a change of mind. Similarly, in the parable of the prodigal son, where the the prodigal son is living amongst the slop of the hogs that he's having to feed, uh, destitute and poor, it says that he has a change of mind as well. And then he decides to go back to his father's household. What we see here is repentance. And repentance, though we, we might throw that word around often in church without really defining it and understanding what it means, repentance is simply, a, it's a change of mind. Repentance is a turning away from one state of mind to another. Repentance is turning away 
from one lifestyle to another. Repentance is a, a turning away from trying to live in our own power and authority to living in submission to the power and authority of God. If you're trying to perform your way into the kingdom, if you're trying to earn your way into God's favor, if you're trying to get the will of the Father, uh, or if you're trying to earn the love of the Father by doing the will of the Father, repentance means turning away from that too. Because here's the thing. We're all lawbreakers. We are all those sons who have already disobeyed. We are all those who, through our words and through our actions, have said to God, I don't want to, and chosen our own way. And so because, just, like, just like whenever in the garden Adam and Eve obeyed, death immediately came upon the earth. Whenever we, we disobey in our lives, in our words and in our actions, or in our thoughts, the just consequence for that is death. No amount of obedience, no amount of trying to go to work in the vineyard will overturn that. Because God is just. But he is just, but because he is also gracious, Whenever we, we repent and we turn away from even that uh, efforts at trying to earn our way back into his good favor or perform our way into his kingdom. Whenever we repent even from that and then place our lives and our salvation in the hands of our gracious God and in the hands of Jesus Christ, well, then he receives that repentance and, we, and, and then his grace is secured for our lives. How is that possible for God to be both just Right in carrying out the consequences for sin, for breaking his law, for not following his will? How is it possible for him to be just, but then also gracious in forgiving sin, receiving our repentance? Is because there's another son. One who is not told in this parable, but who was the teller of the parable. Who wasn't in the story, but was the storyteller himself. There would be another son who, whenever he heard the father's will, immediately obeyed. He obeyed in word and he obeyed in deed. He obeyed in thought and in action. He perfectly fulfilled all righteousness. That path of righteousness that John preached, you know, John at best was, was a preacher and somewhat follower of it because even John himself was not a perfect follower, but this son was. And that was Jesus. But Jesus, who was the, the perfectly obedient son, gave up his sonship. He gave up his seat at the Father's table, his place in the Father's house, so that you and I, us disobedient sons, whether you're that first or that second, so that us disobedient children, whenever we repent and we throw our lives upon, uh, down before his cross, we might receive the benefits and we might receive the reward that should have been Jesus's, the obedient son. For all of his obedience, for all of his following at God's will. The reward that he should have deserved, he laid it down to go to the cross to take on the curse and the condemnation, the consequences that we should have received. So that whenever we repent and turn, we get that reward. We get that salvation. Our sins are forgiven, wiped out. And we can now go with a guilt-free conscience, with all shame, like we talked about today, whenever, the, whenever we receive forgiveness of sin and the Holy Spirit comes into your life, all shame is wiped away. There's no sin or blot on your life that anyone in heaven on, on earth can hold against you any longer. With that freedom, with that forgiveness, we can go to work in his vineyard, bringing about good fruit that blesses the world.
That's how it's possible that the Father might receive our repentance and obedience. And notice, upon repentance, whenever that son changed his mind, what was the evidence that his mind was changed? He immediately went to work. And it's the same thing for our lives. The only proof, the only evidence, the only fruit that there is, that there's a root of repentance in your life, is then going to work in God's field. The, the Puritan commentator, Matthew Henry, said this. He said, observe. When he repented, talking about that son, he went. That was the fruit meat for repentance. The only evidence of our repentance for our former resistance is immediately to comply and set to work, and then what is past shall be pardoned, and all will be well. Friends, if you repent, if you have that change of mind in your life, it cannot stay here. The change of mind cannot stay here, or that turning in your heart, it cannot stay here, but then must be immediately moved into action, into going into the field, and going into the vineyard, right, and obeying God's will. So that is the application. Repentance should be evidenced by obedience. Adam was commissioned into the garden, but we are commissioned into the world. That that commissioning that Adam fell away from, that he disobeyed, that he failed on, because of Jesus Christ, we now have the ability to take up again and enact in the world, working in God's vineyard, the world, to produce a good fruit that blesses the world. The last thing I want us to see before we close is this. Is that Jesus, in his confrontation, uh, and in his indictment against the Sadducees and the Pharisees, was also opening an invitation to them. He was, in, he was opening an invitation to those disobedient sons. Because notice what he said to them. Is in verse 31 it says, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, Tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. Some other translations say ahead of you. And like I pointed out before, Jesus' parable ends open-ended. It doesn't say what eventually happened to that second son who promised but didn't perform. It, it, it stays open-ended. There's, an, uh, there's still time there's still an opportunity for that second son to change his mind, to repent and go to work in obedience to the Father. And for those Sadducees and Pharisees, Jesus is opening invitation to them. He's not saying, you will be forever excluded. He's saying, they're entering ahead of you. They're entering before of you, but the gate is still open. There is still time if you will change, if you will listen to the gospel message. Repent, right? Turn away from your from your big promises, but empty religion. Repent and turn to God. Receive the grace that will be accomplished for them in Christ, and then they can enter into that kingdom too. He was saying there is still time for them. And friends, that is true of each and every one of us today. Maybe there are some of us in here who have not repented yet, who have not had that change of mind. Maybe there's some of us in here who you have been living a complete prodigal lifestyle. You know and you have not been putting on any pretenses that you are not obeying God the Father. Well, you know what? There's time for you. And there is an invitation to you. Maybe some of us, you're that Easter chocolate bunny. You've been looking real good on the outside. 
but your spirituality, your, your religion, your Christianity is absolutely hollow on the inside. For you, there is an even greater danger to live in self-deception. Please examine your heart and see. And if you know, if the Spirit is, is convicting you that that is you, there's time. There is opportunity. The gates of heaven are open to you. And the Son who laid down his life for you is saying to you, come. He's saying, yeah, all those other people, that they're entering now. But they're entering before you, but it's still open to you. So turn to God in repentance while there is still time and receive that grace. Let's pray. Father, we are all disobedient sons and daughters. Lord, we all at different times in our life have been those who have said, well, I don't want to. And, we, and those who don't obey you, Lord, for us believers in here, we know that there's been so many times in our life and seasons in our life where we're just living a hollow Christianity, where we're being polite and we're saying the right things and we know all the good words and we have the good doctrines, but those words and thoughts are not then turning into action and obedience in our life. Father, for all of us disobedient sons, Lord, would you just pour out your grace on this place today and on all of those who are listening right now. Pour out your grace. Send the Holy Spirit to bring conviction, but then in bringing conviction and opening of the heart, a changing of the mind, that that repentance and change of mind might then lead to a flood of mercy, grace, and love filling up the soul. Father, through your, your spirit working in our hearts right now, Lord, just that is the, the main thing that I ask for, a flood of love and of mercy and grace filling up our hearts this morning that might fill us up so much that we begin to overspill with good works in our lives today, that we begin, that it, it, it moves us, it gives us the life and the energy and the motivation that we need to go to work in your vineyard, uh, uh, vineyard to to tend your garden, to cultivate the fields, Father, so that we might see human flourishing and fruit being brought about that blesses the world around us. Father, we pray all these things in the the name and in the one who makes all this possible, Jesus Christ.